Good morning, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful day. Continue. We left off dedicating the class for for Shleima for Rabbi Nachman Mechav Shifrim for Peril Bas Miriam. So we continue. We left off. We're learning the tra- the um, episode of Tisha B'av, very timely, and the fifth chapter in Gitin Perik Hanizakin on the bottom of page fifty-seven B, the last line. He's trying to describe the extent of the massacre in Beitar, which was the fifth and final tragedy that happened on Tijabah. The final stronghold of Barkoch, but so he says 40 saw. Saw is like the equivalent of 144 eggs. Of Tvilin casings were found on the heads of the slain at Beitar. In those days, people used to wear Tvilin all day. So the, the, the Tvilin, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of Tvilin, a lot of heads. A lot of slaughter. So this was the casings without the strap. So it says, There were three boxes of filling casings. Each box contained 40 souls. It was triple that amount. Four. Four. Forty boxes of three. Each one was three Three saw. So altogether is 120 saw. But yeah. times 40, it's all, all the same thing. They're not arguing. How did H or did that? Plague is not arguing. How did H or did that? The 101, the opinion of 101 is referring to on the head. Uh, the data opinion was forty so was referring to the casings the, the, the twillin of the of the arm. He's saying because the head the head is larger, the head is weightier. Because the head is four different com- four compartments for the four Torah scrolls, for the scrolls, four scrolls, separate scrolls. The hand twillin, however, is, is smaller because it's one scroll, it's one compartment. So the weight the weight of the uh, the volume of the head film is greater than the volume of the of the hand film. The head film could be smaller. So therefore, the head the uh, the head film was was the volume of forty saw, but the head film was a volume of one hundred and twenty saw. But it says they were wearing it on the head because they were wearing bearing arms. They were fighting, so they moved the head film on the head. Amar Ravasi, Ravasi said. Four calves of brains were found in one stone. They, they murdered, they smashed. A cow is like 24 eggs. Ulu Amma says, Tisha nine calves, the brains were found on one stone. They smashed the heads of the youth, of the, of the soldiers, for the brains. The brain matter. This is what it says in the passage. It says in the verse, it says in Psalm 130:37 that praiseworthy is he. Basbal violated daughter of Babylonia. Praise, take care. Praiseworthy is he who will repay you. In accordance with the way you were treated, treated us. Praiseworthy is he who will 
hold on, grab on, and dash your infants against the rock. This is what you did to us. You smashed our youth against the rock, and their brain matter scattered on the rock. So it should happen to you. It says in Lamentation, the precious children of Tzioyim, who are Musloyim with Paz. My Musloyim, but what does that mean? If you're going to say it means they're covered with adornments of paws, with like special gold. Two weight, liter weights of paws came down to the world. One fell to Rome and one fell to the rest of the world. So there's not enough paz in the world. Paz is like the choicest gold, very special gold. There's many categories in gold. It's like the highest ca- category of gold. So this special gold, there's only very little of it. And half of it is in Rome and the rest is all over the world. So you don't have enough gold to cover all the, 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 the sons of Zion, children of Zion. Ella, rather, what the Pasuk means is, they would put the paz to shame of their beauty. The beauty of the children of Zion surpassed the beauty of the paz. Paz is beautiful. It's gold that shines and shimmers. like very, very the highest level of gold. So Mesulayim doesn't mean covered. Mesulayim means praised. The precious children of praise are praised with paz because if you compare them to paz, they put paz to shame. Originally, the aristocrats of Rome would have in view of the beautiful figures engraved on the signet rings. And then they would engage in intimacy because they wanted to visualize. The women conceived, they wanted the children to be as beautiful children, so they engraved the image of these Jewish children on their, on their, um, on the signet rings, which is made of paz, which is made of the, the, the highest caliber gold. You know, the aristocracy, aristocracy, the billionaires of Rome. But after the conquest of Israel, Israel, they brought them in live, in person. They captured them in captivity. And the Vaasri and they tied them to their beds, to the legs of their beds, and they would engage in rites so their, their wives could look at these handsome, beautiful children, so they should also have children like them. Because what you do at the moment of conception has a tremendous impact on the child for the rest of their life. That's why you go to the mikveh before, and that's what you think at that moment, the holy thoughts. Effects will affect the child for the rest of their life. So that moment, when the moment of conception, they look at these gorgeous, stunningly beautiful children, this will affect the offspring. One Jewish boy said to his other friend, where is this punishment written in the Torah? Everything is in the Torah. It says, After the Torah lists all the curses that will occur to the Jewish people, the Torah says that even illnesses at the end of Deuteronomy, in Pashat Yisobe, the 98 curses, then he says that even disease and every blow that are not written in the Torah will also happen to you. In other words, this is, this is something that's not even written in the Torah. It's so dastardly. Amari says, How far am I from the place? In other words, how far must I study till I reach that verse? A small amount, only a column and a half. 
was the The first one said to him, I've reached the verse, I would have, I would not have needed you. It was I asked because I didn't reach the verse yet. If I, I didn't get, I didn't learn that part yet. What is the meaning? It says in the passage, It says in, in lamentations, my eyes brought me grief over all the daughters of my city. What tragedy is he referring to? Arbam is what they can better in Beta, yeah, four hundred synagogues. In each of these synagogues, he had 400 teachers of children. He had 400 yeshivas. Each yeshiva had 400 students. And the students stabbed them with their sticks. But when the enemy overpowered the Jews and conquered, captured the students, they wrapped the students in the scrolls, these children, and they set them on fire. That's what the verse is referring to. My eyes have brought me grief over all the daughters of my city. They were saying children, okay. The rabbis learned. This is after the destruction. Travel to the great city of Rome, Amrullah, and they said to him, There's a boy in prison. He's beautiful eyes and a beautiful appearance. His locks are arranged in curls. He's here. Like a gorgeously stunning boy. went and stood by the entrance of the prison. He recited the following words. It says in Isaiah, who has given Jacob over for spoil and Israel to plunder. The child responded. The boy responded. He's responded with another verse. From Isaiah, Ale Hashem, Zuchatanulai, Hashem, who we sent him, Yavu Bidracha, we didn't want his ways, didn't want to go in his ways, and he did not listen to his Torah. I'm certain that this boy will become a legal authority, a halachic authority in Israel. Can I swear by this temple service? I'm not going to budge from here until I succeed in redeeming him for all the money in the world that they demand. They said, It cost him a lot of money. He carried out his commitment. He made a commitment and he fulfilled it. It cost him a lot of money, but he didn't leave there until he redeemed this trial. Within a little time, this boy became one of the leading halachic authorities amongst Israel. And what was his name? Abishol ben Elisha. This was the famous Abishol ben Elisha. The son and daughter of Rabbi Shmuel was a capture, were captured by two different masters. They were sold to different masters, two different Roman masters. And a certain time later, these two masters met each other in a certain place. There, one says, "Yes, I have the most gorgeous, stunningly handsome slave in the world." 
There's no one more beautiful than her, the most beautiful woman I've ever laid eyes on. And this was Rome, the center of the world. He's seen a lot of women, but I've never seen anyone so beautiful like this, like my maid. Amru, they said to each other, let us marry them off together and then we'll divide the children. Children, the children are going to be gorgeous between such two parents. And we'll divide, we'll split the children half and half. So we'll both profit. They brought the son of the Rebbe Shmuel in a room and it was dark. And they said, okay, you're marrying each other. Go be intimate and then and, 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 and create babies. Each one was horrified that they're going to have to live with a guy or live with a shiksa. So there's, this one sat in this corner and this one sat in the other corner. Their father, they were koyinim. I am a koyin, the son of a high priest. I'm going to marry a maid, a slave woman. And she said, I'm a daughter of a koyin, the daughter of a high priest. And I'm going to marry a slave. They wept the entire night and go close to each other. When the dawn broke, they recognized each other. They were brother and sister. Even if they want, they can't be intimate. It's incest. They realized the tragedies. And they started crying. Until their souls departed. It was so tragic. It was so overwhelming. They just couldn't handle it. And they died. And then Yirmiyo lamented. And the book of Lamentations, which was authored by Yirmiyo. During the destruction, after the destruction, over these people I weep. My eyes, my eyes run with water. He's referring specifically to this particular case in his prophecy. He prophesies he saw, he saw this as if it already happened. And he says, "My eyes weep." There was a, an incident with a woman. Her name was Safnas, the daughter of Peniel. She was taken captive. Safna, why was she called Safnas? Shachel Tsefim Yafi, everyone would gaze at her beauty. She walked into a room, everyone's breath stopped, and everyone looked at her. She was so beautiful. Bas Peniel, why was she called Peniel? Because she was the daughter of the high priest. That Peniel went inside, in the, the innermost chambers, and Yom Kippur, he was the only Jew who was able to go into the innermost chamber, the Holy of Holies. And he came out alive. Her captors abused her an entire night. The next day, he clothed her in seven robes, took her out to sell her. And a man who was extremely ugly came out, approached the captain, said to him, Show me your beauty. The captain said to him, You want to buy, buy. Trust me, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. The man said, I'm not buying before I see her. I want to see the merchandise. If she touches a halak, he removes six robes from her. But she cut out the nespalshavayev. She ripped the seventh robe and rolled in the dust, in the ashes. The Abra Lefano, she said before Hashem, Rebbeinu Shalom, Master of the Universe, in Malay, Nalei Chastev, you don't have pity on us.
Kedush Shimcha Gibber Lameli Sachas. Why don't you have mercy, pity, and the holiness of your mighty name that's being so desecrated? Where's your might? Well, okay, now that the daughter of the high priest is being raped and then being sold in front of this ugly, disgusting heathen and being par- paraded naked. Well, look, in Yirmiyo, in reference to Yirmiyo, laments, bas ami, O daughter of my people, chigresak, gird on sackcloth, with spalshi beef and roll in the ashes. Make for yourself a mourning as if for only son, Mispatamrudim, a most bitter lamentation. Kipisim Yahweh Ashade, the lane of the plunder shall suddenly come upon us. This is a Pasuk in Jeremiah, Lechalinamru, is it not said upon you, the people? Hello, Leno. It doesn't say upon you this will happen. Upon us. This is also on Hashem. It's a. This plunderer doesn't only assault me, he's also assaulting you, Hashem, and assaulting us, he's assaulting you. And the sanctity of your name that's associated with us. So, how, do you, how are you so silent? What happened to your might? Why do you allow this to happen? What is the Pasuk referring to when it says, It says in Micha, the prophet Micha, they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his inheritance. What is referring to? There was an incident once with a man who was a carpenter's apprentice, coveted the wife of his master. Hamachas wants hutzurabilis. Once the master needed to borrow money, I'm a late apprentice at him. No problem. I can lend you money. Send your wife to pick up the money. She gets the master sent his wife to the apprentice. The apprentice spent three days with her. She committed adultery with him. The master went early next morning. Went to the apprentice. The master asked him, "What happened to my wife?" Three days ago, I sent my wife to you. What happened to her? I'm alone. The prince said to him, What do you mean? I, I immediately I gave her the money and I sent her away. And I heard that youth raped her on the way. Way back. I'm alone. The master said, What should I do? My wife committed adultery. He was implying that she did it willingly. Not that she was raped. He did it what she was willingly. Amalei, the apprentice sent him, if you listen to my advice, divorce her. Amalei, the master sent him, but Ksuv is a lot. I don't have money to pay her. If I divorce her, I have to pay her a lot of money. What do you mean? If you commit adultery, she loses her rights to Ksuv. But to hear there was no proof. He's just saying he heard a rumor. So you can't, until you bring proof, she doesn't forfeit her Ksuv. So I don't have all that money to pay her. Oh, Martin, so he said, the apprentice said to him, and the Alvich of a ten legs of us, so I'll lend you the money, and you'll give it the Ksuba, and you'll pay me over time. So he listened to the advice of the apprentice, so he divorced her. So the moment he divorced Allah, so the apprentice went and married her. In other words, the whole thing was a, was a lie. He himself, he, he slept with her for three days. 
Halak, even she gives him money when it came time to pay the loan and he couldn't pay. So he said, I'm like, boy, come and work for me to pay if he that become my butler. His wife, his ex-wife, was sitting with his former apprentice. And he served that he was the servant serving them. They were eating and drinking and fornicating. And he sat and because he wasn't, he wasn't really allowed to marry her, he committed adultery with her. When he served them drinks, his bitter tears fell and fell into their cup. Hashem was so angry at that moment. The, it was sealed. The decree against the Jewish people said they reached such levels of depravity. They reached such level of immorality, such level of lies. Shenanigans, Hashem said, this is it, I've had it. Some say the decree was sealed because of two wicks and one lamb, because of the adultery that was committed by the apprentice and his wife. That, that's what sealed the deal. In other words, this was a well-publicized incident and no one protested. Everyone knew he committed adultery with her. Three days they were hanging out, having fun. One No, but everyone knew. The community knew. And everyone was silent. How could he live with her? You're not allowed to commit adultery. You can't live with her. And they allowed and they were silent. The whole community became depraved. The whole community became... The moral standards were so low. The conclusion of the, the whole episode of Tisha B'av, now we go back to the mission. It says in the mission, for an acquired land. From Sikirikan, the bandit, Uncle Tony, who forced you to sell the land, to give the land, to give him the land, and then you buy it from, from, uh, from this bandit. So we said the, the acquisition is void. Because, we, because the owner never agreed to give it to the guy. He gave it to him, he had no choice, he was coerced. This is only in a case where the owner said to the purchaser, Go perform an act of chazaka and therefore acquire it. How do you transfer ownership from one person to the other? You can't just agree to transfer, you have to do something. A Kenyan. Right. A formal act of acquisition, a Kenyan. It's called a chazaka. That you're, you're demonstrating ownership. As someone who owns the land would do something, demonstrate he's the owner. Plowing a small part of the field, locking the gates, opening the entrance, etc. But if, but if he wrote a, a document, when the owner writes a document of sale, then even though he was cursed, you're writing a document. That means you agree to the sale. So then the Jew buys from the bandit, it's his, it's, the sale is void, is, is, is valid. He's showing, he's agreeing. Why are you writing a document, a bill of sale, a deed? I can, give the, I can give it without a document. The fact that you chose to also write a document means you're affirming that, okay, I, I wasn't happy, I didn't want to, but now it's done. Shul Omer Shul argues and Ravi says no. I'm not going to even write the document. Also, you don't acquire the land. Unless he takes responsibility. If he writes for the buyer that if anyone takes the land from you, I will make you good. Then who asked you to do that? No one asked you to do that. You coerced to sell the land, so you agree. Not only transition, making the transition by making a kinyan, but even writing a document is also part of the coercion. The guy wanted a deed. Fine. 
But who asked you to take responsibility if the land would be seized from the from the purchase? It wasn't. And if you went ahead and did it anyway, that means you agree on the sale. We continue on side B fifty-eight B. opinion. One acquires a lien on the property from the wife of the owner. Because of a lucky money each, and then he acquired the property itself from the husband, acquisition is valid. But if he first buys it, Manish, because of a lucky and then he acquires the lien from the wife, acquisition is void until the wife writes for the purchase. She can say, until she takes responsibility, she can say, I sold you. Let's say there was a lien on the property to pay for the ksuva. He wants to buy the land, he wants it to be free of any lien. So he pays the wife, he says, listen, I want you to write a... The wife is, 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 is the actual owner of the land, not, not the husband? The wife, no, even if the, owner, the husband is the owner of the land, the wife is the one who has the lien on the property. She has the lien. She has the lien. If, if he divorces her, if he divorces her, he dies, that property is mortgageable to pay a ksuva. He wants to free himself from that lien. He wants to be free and clear. So he goes to the wife, he says... So we say it depends when it happened. If she sold off her lien... Before the husband sold it, I mean, it's serious, it's a sincere sale. And then there's no lien. Then the husband buys, when the husband sells the property, and then he dies, she, can't, she cannot collect the ksuva from this, it's no, no longer mortgageable to pay her ksuva. She sold it, she sold that lien. But if the husband sells it first, and then he goes to the wife and says, I really want to have this land without any mortgage, free and clear, no lien. I want to, no, I want to hold on to it for you. I bought it from your husband. It's my land now. But I want the land to remain for me forever. I want it to be free and clear. If your husband dies, you can't collect on it. And she agrees. It means nothing. Because she wants to please her husband. I don't want to argue with her husband. So she said, it's not sincere. I was coerced into it. So then when the husband dies, she does collect from the land. What happens if he pays off the wife himself? The buyer pays off. No, no, he has, the, he has that right to do that. But he doesn't want to. He wants no lean on me. I'm out of the picture. And she agreed. It doesn't mean anything. She was cursed. She wanted to make her husband happy. Unless she takes responsibility. If she writes that not only am I freeing you from any lean, but if anything happens to you, I'm going to make you good. No one asks you to do that. This you took on your own. That means you're sincere about removing the lien. Clearly, like Shmuel, that it's only when when do you know when could do you demonstrate that you weren't coerced that you agreed willingly if you take responsibility, like Shmuel says. Only in the case where you take responsibility, if the one who was forced to sell his land took responsibility, only then. How can Rav argue with a He would say, when he says responsibility means she wrote a document. That alone is enough to show that she's serious. The Mishnah said that when a person, that the, the second version, the later version was when they buy from the secret, when the Jew buys from the secret, from the bandit who forced the sale of the land force the land away from the uh, original owner it's his the sale is good but since he got it at a discount he has to pay a quarter of the price to the original owner tell me about another rabbi's learn look I'm not sick you can put the land from the sick from the bandit and he ate his produce for three years in the presence of the original owner 
He had the opportunity to contest the land, and he didn't. Three years is enough time that you no longer have to hold on to a document. Because if the owner was silent for three years and you're working this field, it's proof enough that surely he sold it to you. He had the owner, the original owner, had three years to complain that he never got the quarter. 25% of the price from the, the second Jew who bought it, for, bought it from the bandits. Then he sold it to another. The original owner has no claim against the second purchase. In other words, we can assume we assume that the, uh, the first owner, the first buyer, when the bandit paid the quarter percent and therefore it's his. So now he has a right to sell it to the other Jew, and the other Jew, the second buyer, doesn't have have to give has no connection to the original owner. He doesn't have to pay him any. The Gemara says, "What? What? Now the Gemara tries to analyze the price. What are we talking about? We're talking about a case where the second buyer claims to the original owner that the first buyer bought it from you. He paid the first quarter. They paid the quarter twenty five percent." Even the first buyer is believed to make such a claim. The first buyer could also make a claim that he paid the 25%. He's in the land, so we assume that he, he, he's rightfully so, and that he took care of it. He, take, he took care of 25%. He doesn't have to prove it. But if we're talking about a case where the second buyer doesn't claim that the first buyer bought it from you by paying the one quarter. Because he doesn't know, he doesn't know if the first buyer, how the first buyer obtained his land. He just knows that he's in the land and he sold it to him. In that case, I feel ashamed and even the second one should not be exempt from making the payment. Because when do you say that three years is a chazak? Three years is a chazak only if you have an argument. There's no squatter's law in Judaism. You can, if you sit in the land for 20 years, someone asks you, what are you doing? He says, I don't know, no one said anything. You throw him out, like a dog. That's not an argument. What gives you a right to be here? If you argue, I bought it, you have an argument. And it's backed up by the fact that you're here for so many years, no one said it. Three years, no, no one said a word. The original owner never complained. But if you have no argument here, the second one has no argument. He says, the owner is coming to him, what are you doing in my land? He says, I don't know, this guy sold it to me. Who said it's his to sell? I don't know. So that's not an argument. So why do you say that the second one remains in the land? I'm going to Really, we're talking about a case where the second one has no idea. He's not arguing that the first one paid the 25% and that therefore legally it was his right to own the land and therefore it was his right to sell the land. But, but nevertheless, the second purchaser is exempt from payment because in this case, we argue for We say on his behalf that surely the first, the first buyer paid is 25% and everything is legit and everything is legal. But in this case, since the law states that the original owner can always take back his own land, pay for it, yeah, but he can always take back the land, so the, the one, the purchaser from the Sikrikun, from the bandits, would never have bothered to acquire the land until, unless he first got assurances 
from the uh, from the original owner that uh, that it's okay, and he'll give him the twenty five percent. So therefore, we argue that he was there legitimately, and therefore, it was his right to sell. But in the case where the first buyer is still in possession of the land, if he argues, he claims he was, that he paid the, for the 25%, then yes, then he's exempt. But if he doesn't, he's not exempt. We're not going to claim on his behalf. That's why he says the case where the second buyer, only in the case of the second buyer, because the first buyer knows, so let him make his own claim. You don't have to argue for him. Did he pay or didn't he pay? In the second case where he doesn't know, we make the argument. Because we safely assume that everything was done legitimately, otherwise he wouldn't have bothered, the first buyer wouldn't have bothered to buy it unless everything was done correctly. But in the case of the first buyer, he knows, why do we have to argue for him? Did he pay or didn't he pay? If he paid, let him claim that he paid. And if he does, not claiming that he paid, then it's not his. Then we remove it from him. Tell the rabbi and the rabbis learn. If an idolater comes and seizes a Jew's land for a debt, not he didn't threaten them with his life. Sikrikun is someone who threatened the Jew with his life. Here he just he owed a debt and he couldn't pay, so he seized his land. He seized the land without cause. In such a case, the law of sikrikun does not apply. And in this case, someone who buys it from the idolater must restore it to the original owner and he doesn't get any compensation for it. When a Jew surrenders the property under threat of death, so therefore he, he really gave him the land because his life is more precious, his life is, his life is more valuable. He sincerely gave up the land. And then if he doesn't challenge the Sikrikan for the next 12 months, even though there's laws and there's courts, obviously he relinquished it sincerely. So that's why Rebbe said someone who buys the land, a Jew buys the land, Sikrikan after 12 months, because he's allowed to keep it. He only has to pay the quarter that he got the discount and paid to the original owner. But when an idolater took, takes land without threatening his life, why should I assume that the Jew surrendered his rights? Even if he allowed it to keep it for 12 months without challenging. Maybe the reason is because he didn't have the opportunity. So even after 12 months, the land is still his, and someone buys it from him, he has to restore it without any compensation. It's not about, yes, uh, um, so if you have an office space that is personal, anything that's managed by an individual, in the case of a land stolen without any cause, the land has to remain 12 months with the idolater before another person can acquire it permanently. But after 12 months, he can keep it. The one who buys from the keeper is not obligated to restore it to the owner. So that's the difference in the case of a debt and a case when it was taken for no reason. It makes a distinction between a debt that was taken for no, for no reason. If for a debt, then even after 12 months, he has to restore the owner. In a case of uh, no reason, 
Within 12 months, he has to restore. After 12 months, he doesn't have to restore. He just has to give him the owner, the original owner, the 25% discount that he got. He started out, there's no sukrikum. It's not applicable. So why it was taken for no reason? Does he get to keep it? After 12 months, he could sell it. He could buy it. The Jew can buy it from him. This is what the Brais is saying. Sikrikon in the case of a Sikrikon itself, it's only for 12 months before you can acquire it. So it's not talking about someone who took without a cause, but a Sikrikon. If you take it without a cause or for a debt, then you can never acquire it. You must restore it to the original owner. But in the case of Sikrikon, we wait 12 months. Within 12 months, he has to restore it. If he doesn't do anything within 12 months, then the Jew who buys it from the Sikrikon could keep it, but he has to give the original owner of the 25% discount that he got. The bottom line is we have three different halachas. If a land was seated under threat of death in time of war when the government is not protecting Jewish life, then the owner sincerely gives up his land to save his life, and the Sikrikon, if someone who buys it from him, can buy it 100%. You don't have to give anything, you don't have to pay anything to the original owner. If it's after the war, when the occupiers do protect Jewish life, there is a law and there's courts. So you can't assume that it was relinquished sincerely unless it remains for 12 months. If it's within 12 months, he has to restore it to the original owner. If the original owner come up with the money that he paid, he has to restore the land to the original owner. But after 12 months, since the owner did nothing, so he gets to keep the land, but he has to give the owner 25%. But if it was taken without any threat of death, for to pay a debt or for no reason, then the owner never relinquishes his rights. Even after 12 months, he can always take back his land, even without any compensation for the Jew who bought from this person. I'm Rabbi Yisuf. Rabbi Yisuf said, "Naktina, we learn in Amparus Bavel. There's no such case in Bavel where land is stolen without cause. Because in Bavel they don't do that. People just don't steal land. So if a Jew claims that land was stolen from for no reason, we don't believe it. It's just not done in Bavel. But we see that it is done." Alayma rather say, Rabbi Yisuf meant to say, in din andras You don't have the law of stolen land without causing bubble. In Babylonia, one who buys such land can keep it. You don't have the law that you have to restore it without any compensation. My time, why not? Since this courthouse is in Babylonia, you didn't go and complain about your stolen land. You can assume that you forgave him for it. You've forgiven him. Otherwise, you would complain. Pavel is, is a civilized society. There's laws, there's courts. You're silent. Someone takes your land, steals your land for no reason. In the case of a death, there's one thing. But here, there's no reason. And you were silent, so surely you had forgiven. But it relates to the story. You accepted some land from the residents of a valley in exchange for a corresponding portion of the valley's real estate tax. Or, in other words, one of the residents who lived there went away, traveled for, for unspecified time. So they, the, the, the remaining people, the residents of the valley, gave someone else 
gave Gidel, but Eloi gave him the rights for, to the land, absentee's land, on condition that he pay the taxes. Even though he only had to pay one year's tax, he paid for three years. He prepaid. Eventually, before the end of the three years, the original owner came back home. He says, I don't have to pay for the extra two years. I came home after one year. Who asked Giddle? Giddle only had a right to pay taxes for one year. So yes, the taxes he paid for one year, he has a right for all the fruits of that one year. But he, he prepaid, who asked him? I'm not responsible. I'm a lady. He said to, he said to Giddle, shot the kamais, the owner said, the first year that you paid, I'm going to pay you. And you already consumed its produce, so you already all paid up. From now on, I'll pay the tax and I'll, I'll, I'll eat from the produce. But Gidel argued, no, you should pay me for the two years of taxes that I prepaid. That I came before the rabbi, that came for ruling. Papa considered writing a collection document for Gidel, empowering him to collect his laws from the residents of the valley. So they used to what they used to put all the tax money together and pay for everyone together collectively. So since he prepaid, they should all he helped them all by prepaying taxes for two years, he helped them all, so they should all they should all participate in making him good for prepaying tax two years in advance. And that's the case, you're turning him into a sikrikun. You're protecting Gidl. Just like the rabbis protected someone who redeemed land from a sikrikun. Because you're saying the rabbis enacted, the special enactment of the rabbis was that the one who buys from the sikrikun doesn't lose anything. If he has to restore the land the first 12 months, he gets paid for it. If it's after the 12 months and he gets to keep the land, he only has to pay the 25% discount, which anyway was a discount. So he's not losing anything. So here too, you're saying that he prepaid, you're treating him like a cyclical that he doesn't lose anything. That Giddle doesn't lose anything. And But he's not. They only legislated this special protection in the case of a cyclical, a special case of a cyclical. Not in a case like this. Yeah, there was a bandit that stole the land and the Jew was buying it from him, but not, not in a case like this. It's not, it's not the government is not seizing land. It's not like a sikrikun. Gidl put his money in the horn of a deer. He threw away his money. Did anyone ask you to prepay? Tough luck. Okay, the mission says, mission that was the original teaching of the rabbi Ben what the latter Bezin said, he doesn't have to restore the land, he gets, he gets to keep the land, but he has to compensate the owner, pay him the discount, the amount that he was discounted, the 25%. Oh, but the rabbi said, he asked, when you say a quarter, does it mean he has to give him 25% of the land or he has to give him 25% of the value of money? It says a quarter. So Rav said, he has a choice. He has a choice. Either he can give him 25% of the land or he can give him 25% of the money, the value. Shmuel says, no. He has to pay one quarter of the land, which is the equivalent one third of the money 
One quarter means a quarter of the land, which is one third of the money. The Shmuel hold. So the argument in Rav and Shmuel, Rav says that the discount is 20% discount. Let's say the land would really be worth $125. Instead, he only charges him 100 So he got a 20% discount. And so he gets paid, either he pays him 20% discount in money, or he gives him the equivalent of the land, which is a fifth of the land he gives to the original owner. Shmuel says, no, it's not a 20% discount, it's a 25% discount. So, a land that's worth 100, he only charged 75. So therefore, either he gets land, 25% of the land, or he has to give him the equivalent. So if he bought it for for 75 he has to give him the discount is 25 so either he gives him a quarter of the land or he gives him the 25 so that's the argument whether he has to pay 20, it's a 25% discount or 20% discount what are they arguing Marsover and Chedivi Zavin Shmuel holds secret and sells the land for a quarter less than it's true. And Rav holds only 20% less. And he holds 25% less. Mace, I'll ask you, we learned in Brais, uh, that's the original teaching, the latter Bezin said, he gives one quarter to the original owner. The owner has the upper hand. What? How he wants to be paid? If the original owner, if the if the owner wants to collect land, he collects land. If he wants, you keep the land. I don't want a quarter of land, a parcel of land. Pay me. Give me money. He collects money. When do we say this? Is man shame be other than the owner doesn't have the means to buy the land itself? Yes, we have but if he has the means to buy the land, in Kedmul Chalodon, he he buys ahead of everyone else. You can't sell it to someone else. You can't force him to lose his land. If you're selling, I'll pay you the whatever you paid. I'll pay. And they decided It depends. He made a distinction. If it was the first twelve months, within twelve months, yes, he can buy the land. That's before twelve months. But if it's twelve months, he waited twelve months. Then he loses the right to be the first one to buy back the land. The, the original owner. Then whoever buys first buys. But he has to pay a quarter either in land or in money. When he says a quarter in the money, means that you pay one quarter of the payment, that the discount is 25%, like um, that the discount is 25%. This proves, like Shmuel, that the discount is 20%. Because he says you pay one quarter of the payment. 
which was the discounted price, not the real value of the of the land. So this refutes Rav, who says, "No, you pay twenty five percent of the value of the of the property." What Rav Ashi, Rav Ashi says, "Kitanya he when the Brais is talking about Lachashabov mostly after the owner received received the payment." <coughs> Price means not a, a quarter of the amount he paid, like Rav is saying. He meant a quarter amount that the whole field is worth. Because he, he, three quarters he gave to the Sikrikun, and a quarter he gave to the purchaser. Altogether, that's the full value of the whole entire land. That's what I do to the Mishnah. I was present during the counting of the votes in Nabi's court. And they began counting with me. My opinion was first. And now we learned in the Mishnah, we learned in Sanhedrin, you always start with the most prominent member of the court. Why would they start with the Rav? When it comes to capital punishment, there you start with the lowest, the least eminent judge. So no one would be afraid to contradict him, to go against his opinion. So this was a matter of financial matters. Why would we start with Rav? Sigmar answers, Rav the son of Rav said, answer, mother said, Rav the son. Of Rabbi Valas said the shiny minyan of the way Rabbi counting of votes at Rabbi's court was different. The cool minyan and asadab maskil. There they would always start with the side because again no one would go against the Rabbi. Once the Rabbi said his opinion, no one would dare voice an opinion against the Rabbi, different than the Rabbi. Rashi says Rabbi Rabbi held that this this the verse that we learn it from that you're not allowed to. Answer after the the, the, uh, the superior one, the greatest the Mitz has spoken refers to all cases, not only matters of capital punishment, but even in financial matters. Or some say because of his humility, he was the last one to voice his opinion. Okay, once we already quote them, they quote another thing they said. From the days of Moshe Rabbeinu until the days of Rebbe, we don't find Torah and greatness in one place. Rebbe is one of the wealthiest Jews that ever lived. Moshe himself also was, had greatness and also wealth. From Moshe became rich from the leftovers of the sapphire, which he carved out the the luchas, the tablets, the second set of tablets. Also, both Rebbe and Moshe were the seventh. Moshe was the seventh from Avram, and Rebbe was the seventh from Hillel. What about Yeshua? He was also prominent in Torah and in greatness. What about Elazar? Oh, the Gemara answers, in Yeshua's lifetime, there was Elazar, who was also as great as Yeshua in Torah knowledge. He was. He received the Torah. Moshe taught it to Aaron. Then he would teach it to Elazar, to his sons. So he was equal to Torah. So you can't say there was no one greater than him. Yeah, 
After the death of Yeshua, then he had a Lazar, who was tired in greatness. Because he had Pinchas, was alive in the life of a Lazar, who was just as great as a Lazar in Titus culture. And after Lazar died, he had Pinchas. He had the elders, who was just as great. You can't say he was unequal. There was never a time there was one individual who was unequal, unparalleled. No one in his generation was parallel to him. When Pinchas' father died, Allah, he had the elders. Like when I have a Shaul. Shaul was also great in Torah. Besides, he was king. He was great in Torah. And we learned in Edevin that in most ways, the Torah of Shaul was just as great as David. But, but he had Shmuel, who was just as great. But Shmuel died while Shaul was still king. So Shaul was preeminent. We mean that no one person in the generation, this answers all the questions. There was no great person in the entire, all of his years, he was the most preeminent Torah authority and the greatest. Like what about David? It was David. Besides being king, David was also a great Torah scholar. But was just as great as David in his Torah knowledge. But when Ida died and David was still king, what it says, we said, someone was preeminent all the years of his greatness. Besides being king, Shlema was the wisest man that ever lived. He was the greatest Torah scholar. What happened Shiva Ben Geda? Yet Shiva Ben Geda was just as great as Shlema Melech in Torah. Others say that Shimi was Shlema Melech teacher. But he killed him and he executed him. Shlema executed Shimi, so Shlema was alone. All the years. Chizkiah was also a great Torah scholar. If you want to have a Shevna, but yet Shevna was greater than Chizkiah and Torah and Torah and Torah knowledge. His yeshiva was greater than Chizkiah. But Shevna was killed during Chizkiah's lifetime. The Syrian emperor killed Shevna. All the years. Chemia had greater power and authority than... He was the governor than Ezra. And I also say, from the times of Rebbe until Rabashi, the author of the Talmud, the 40th in line of transmission, the Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu until Rabashi, Rabashi was also wealthy and he had authority and was the greatest Torah scholar. He was Huna, the son of Rab Nasan. Learned in Mayid Cotton that Ravashi asked his life to be extended, and he said, No, it's time for Hunar Ban Nasan to take over Ravashi's position. So how could you say it was unparalleled? Hunabanasan was different because he was subordinate to Ravashi. So Ravashi was preeminent in Torah and authority. We continue to have another wonderful day.